0: Most of us know who Emperor Constantine was. Emperor Constantine was the first Christian emperor of Rome. He was the one that gave what's called the Edict of Milan, which was also called the Edict of Toleration, that said it was illegal to persecute Christians. And it is hard to express the joy that the church felt when this happened. Can you imagine? Not only are we not going to be persecuted anymore, but the emperor himself is is a Christian, that's amazing that they got rid of all the idols and they started you know, putting crosses everywhere. That's astonishing. Well, we are all familiar with how the, the blending of church and state can cause problems. So as happy a thing as it was for the emperor to start protecting the church, Constantine's kids were not Constantine. And three of his sons, whose names are all like Constans, Constantine II, Constantius, he kind of had a thing for his own name, sort of like George Foreman. But he had five sons named them all George, in case you didn't know that. Um, but his kids were what is known as the Arian emperors. Arianism, you remember, was the doctrine that the Son of God was a created being, that he was not a member of the Trinity, that he also did not believe in the Holy Spirit as a person, and it led to the Nicene Creed and a long controversy that we call the Arian controversy. And part of what made it so deadly is that the Arians had gotten the ear of the emperor's sons who followed him three in a row in succession, and they began to exert authority over the church, so that unfortunately, what had been a blessing that the emperor is now protecting the churches and we're not being persecuted. Now these emperors are asserting for themselves the authority they used to have over the pagan temples and say, you must teach this way. Well, I told you before that Athanasius and there were others, but he was certainly the, the spearhead pushed back against this. He was exiled and began to write from the desert, but Constantine had a grandson named Julian. Julian is known to history as Julian the Apostate, because after four Christian emperors, Julian the grandson of Constantine was the first Roman emperor to try to take the empire back to worshiping the pagan gods. You can see it was like a deft chess move that Satan pulled. It's like, fine, you want a Christian emperor? Well, I'm going to get his kids and make them heretics, and then I'm going to take their kid, I'm going to make him a pagan again, and we'll be right back where we started. Well... He made the mistake, as I said a few weeks ago, of, you know what I'm going to do to mess all the Christians up? I'm going to bring back that troublemaker Athanasius, and that will really ruin everything. And Athanasius got back and did not listen to a word the empire said. He never did, because he was a good pastor. Got all the churches together. They were able to finally agree upon a a creed they all could follow. And now all of a sudden the church was united again, and uh, Julian died after reigning for only three years. And in 363 AD, after it was clear that the church was restored, the empire was not going to go back to paganism, and it never did, by the way, despite the efforts of Marcus Aurelius and others, the final words of Julian the Apostate as he lay on his deathbed were, "Viciste Galilei, which is Latin for Galilean thou hast conquered. Viciste, it's like vene vidi vici, right? I came, I saw, I conquered. Galilean, of course, is Jesus of Galilee. So his last words were, Jesus, you beat me. Jesus, you win. I love that story because it just shows the Lord is like, you don't get to defy me and get away with it. There have been and always will be men who defy God, whether at the state, institutional level, or all the way down into your house. And it doesn't matter what strata of society you occupy, it never ends well. And that's what Psalm 2 is all about. Psalm 2 is actually considered to be part of the introduction to the book of Psalms because most of them, almost all of them, have what's called a superscription, meaning they've got a little bit at the beginning that says, to the choir master, or a psalm of David, or written on this occasion. Psalm 1 and 2 do not. And we saw that Psalm 1 kind of has this overarching wisdom theory, or sorry, theme, that it's a good thing to follow the word of the Lord. Psalm 2 is considered by many to be the second part of that, that it's not just following the word of the Lord, but it's following the person of the Lord, worshiping God himself and his king Psalms has a very strong royal emphasis, which is very prophetic of the King of Kings, which is our Lord Jesus, but I love this this, this dual emphasis here that the first one is about doing the right thing, but the second bit is about worshiping the right person. Psalm 2 is quoted many times in the New Testament as a prophecy of Jesus Christ, our Messiah. And we're going to get into just about all of those, at least the major ones tonight. But I I also want to focus on this theme of defiance of God. There's several ways we can apply this psalm. And we're going to look at each one of these in turn to help us structure the study tonight. The first is at the national level. And that's the primary sense of this passage. This is about God's chosen people Israel and the kings that he has set up for them. However, there is a secondary, we'll call it celestial or heavenly level, spiritual level, where the the human king over this specific nation foreshadows the king of kings, Jesus Christ, who will be the Lord over every nation. And that this represents not just the nations resisting Israelite rule, but resisting God's rule over all of humanity. And the third level is the personal level. How when we just don't like it when God tries to tell us what to do. And this is a great reminder for us as a second part introduction, if you want to divide it that way, that you cannot separate God's word from God himself. The Bible is not just another book of axioms or theories for you to evaluate critically, right? Most people don't even know what they mean when they say that. But critically evaluate it or apply it to other philosophies or evaluate what we know now through all of our moral advancements. God is a king. Jesus Christ is his king. And these are his edicts for you. You don't get to say, well, your highness, I don't know if I agree with that. Did I ask you if you agreed with that? You cannot separate God's word from God himself. No nation, and certainly no man, can defy the living God. He will always have his way in the end, whether that's at the national level concerning Israel, the celestial level concerning the end of the world, or the personal level in your life. So let's look at this first stanza, these first three verses. This is, of course, a song. It's a hymn. That's what the word psalm means. And it begins, Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is what is commonly called a royal psalm. We talked about this psalm last time. There are various genres of the different psalms that carry similar themes. The first one is what is called a wisdom psalm. This is what is usually called a royal psalm. It's describing the king. That is, of course, the Davidic king. And especially and typologically refers to Jesus. And the singer begins with a rhetorical question, why do the nations rage? Describing rebellion. You know, that rage that we've seen on TV, perhaps and in various nations are in our own. And the singer's saying, why are they raging? And it's very interesting to me that, that he's using Gentile language here. The word for nations in Hebrew is goim. It's very often translated Gentiles or ethne in Greek, which is where we get the word ethnic from or ethnicity. Peoples is the word amim and it refers not to a, a nation specifically as much as like a, a people group or what might I say a racial group. These words are commonly referred to or used to refer to nations and peoples outside of the land of Israel. Which is very interesting right away because we're talking about Israel's king. And now we're talking about other nations resisting Israel's king. And you might think, don't you have your own king? Don't you have your own problems? Why are you worried about this? Well, it's very likely that such a psalm was written or would often be sung at the beginning of a new regime. Peaceful transfer of power is a a very special and unique thing in history. That's what made George Washington, among among others, such a great man, is he was the president, and then he handed it off to the next guy. And that set the example so that the next guy handed it off. And this is what is expected and eventually was enshrined in the law now. And we see that and we take it so for granted that we forget that most of the time throughout history, when the king died and his son became king, this was all the other nation's chance. You know, that city was historically ours. Let's take it back. You know, we've been tra- paying tribute to Israel. And I know that David and Solomon were strong kings, but Rehoboam doesn't scare me. You know, they're, they're kind of at unrest right now. There's a civil war going on. So you know what? We're going to go back and take that tract of land because I think we can. This is what would happen and, in fact, still happens many places all over the world. So perhaps this is the context for such a psalm to be written, that when a new king is anointed, maybe a young king, somebody like Josiah, who was eight years old, like they got a kid running that nation. So yeah, I think I'll take my chances on this one. We'll go to war. And maybe the king would be upset, but there's this psalm that's written that says, what are these nations raging for? Thinking they can come in and cast off the rule of God's king. And they're raging specifically against, it says, his anointed. Underline that word. In the ESV, it's capitalized as it should be. This is the Hebrew word, Mashiach. Mashiach. When we transliterate it to English, we get the word Messiah against his Messiah. That's what the word Messiah means. It means anointed one, as they would anoint kings. They would take a horn of oil, they would pour it over the king's head, which was a way of honoring anybody, but especially for the king, it was symbolic of the favor and the spirit of God coming upon them. So he's talking here about the king, but you can read this with a dual meaning, and in fact, you're intended to, as a lowercase k, the king, and then a capital K, the king, meaning the son of David who is next in line for the throne and the capital S, son of David, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Why do the nations rage and want to burst the bonds of God and his Messiah? Let's look at the national application first here, which is the obvious one. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised David he would have an everlasting kingdom, that he would never lack a son to sit on the throne. And this is why... They write this song with such confidence. It could have been David. There are many authors of the different Psalms. And maybe he's just writing, don't let the the rabble of the other nations scare you. Don't let your vassal states intimidate you, my son, my grandson. God has promised that we are his anointed ones and he's going to take care of us. Remember, David had a very high honor for the anointed of the Lord. He wouldn't even kill Saul when he had the chance to. Twice. And David was not shy about killing folks here. (laughs) David was a warrior. David was a a bandit, you might say, kind of like a Robin Hood figure for most of his life. And then he sees Saul and, of course, all of his guys who are the rough and tough, you know, freedom fighters of David. Like, David, get him. (laughs) Go get him. He's like, hey, that's God's anointed. I'm not going to touch him. That's why the Lord's like, see, that's my guy right there. That's my guy. And so David says, you can rest in the same confidence that caused me to be afraid to strike down Saul as what God has given you. Even if it wasn't David that wrote this, it certainly applies. And I mean, it is the case that Israel has never had an easy time with its neighbors. That's not a new thing. It has been even back in the Bible. We're going to get to Kings eventually, Samuel and Kings and Chronicles and and especially Ezra and Nehemiah. We've read the Gospels, you know, about Rome. We've talked about the Hasmoneans and, and how they were kicked back and forth between other nations. It's always been like that. Building up to the Six-Day War in 1967. You know, I looked up the date. Uh, I wanted to make sure I got the year right for the Six-Day War, and I pulled up the article, and it had a, a list. It was like, you know, name of the war, year of the war, it goes, belligerence. And then on one side it has, you know, Egypt, Jordan, big long list, Saudi Arabia, of all these Arab nations. Over here it goes, Israel. I'm like that's, uh, those aren't good odds, are they? That's, they, they were going to wipe Israel off the map and drive them into the sea. But they won the six-day war. It was an astonishing victory. When they took back Jerusalem for the first time since Bible times. There's always been nations. There are still those to this day. That when I stand up, and it seems like, I think it was Thomas Ice that said this, who's a prophecy scholar. He said, it seems to me that the only thing the UN ever really does consistently is condemn Israel. Why? Because you've got about a million Islamic nations that hate Israel. And say, hey, let's vote on this again and get it out there. Even in the United States, this is on the rise, and it concerns me. There are even those that would call themselves conservative Christians that are like, I just don't know about Israel. They've been fed all this other stuff. Satan hates God's chosen people. He wants to see them driven into the sea. And so this is why the Lord has to give this reassurance. Like, hey, I've got y'all. I'm taking care of you. And it's it's never going to go away. That's, you're right, Uh, we've read about in Revelation, the 144,000. God is going to preserve Israel to the end until Jesus returns and reigns from Jerusalem. But this has cosmic, celestial, heavenly application as well. Concerning God and his son, Jesus Messiah. It is not just a confidence boost to the new rulers of Israel. It's a typological picture of the ultimate king of Israel. That the kings of the earth want to take counsel and get rid of God and get rid of his Messiah. So let's say Jesus. And isn't that the case? This is how the New Testament understood it. In Acts 13, verses 32 through 33, Paul is preaching. He says, we bring to you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. We'll get to that verse in just a moment. Now that verse is kind of looking at Jesus uh, in the resurrection, right? He's talking about Jesus being kind of crowned as king, but it goes deeper than that. Hebrews chapter one, verse five, quoting this Psalm again says, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you, or I'll be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. The way the church understands this passage is when it says later that today I've begotten you, it's referring to this eternal generation of the son that we talked about not long ago. That there, it's a, it's a constant and ever present today that Jesus Christ is the son of God, Right? Which is one of the reasons, among many, we get to the theological positions we do. But all that to say that this passage is also talking about the people of the world's resentment of God and resentment of Jesus Christ. And I don't really need to prove that to anybody, do I? That the peoples and the nations resent the rule of Jesus Christ, even the idea. Even in places where Christianity doesn't even hold sway any longer, it seems that there are ferocious opponents that want nothing more than to eradicate the name of Jesus from the public square. Even as they, in the name of tolerance, elevate every other creed and every other religion. Even digging up dead ones from archaeological sites to revive. The Jews, even to this day, they are the ones that are wanting to cast off the rule of their Messiah. They've refused to accept the rule of Jesus Messiah, which is why Paul says they are under judgment until Christ returns. I think one of the biggest examples is Islam. Islam loves to paint itself as the ancient and historic uh, belief of of all Arab peoples. But it came about in the 600s A.D., And part of Muhammad's appeal to the people was less about this new revelation I've got. It was, don't you hate these Christians from Rome ruling over us? We need something for our people. Let's cast off those shackles. Let's let's get rid of this. That's what he did. Atheists, of course, for people that don't believe in God, they sure spend an awful lot of time talking about him, don't they? It's, it's kind of funny when you watch that. It's like, if you truly believed, as Richard Dawkins likes to say, that God is the flying spaghetti monster, then why are you spending so much time talking about it? If I thought that God was a flying spaghetti monster, I would just laugh and move on because they resent the idea of anybody lording anything over them. And most recently, we see this in the postmodernists, the postmodern movement, the idea that, Religion, especially Christianity and Jesus Christ and the scriptures, is systemic oppression. This is why I warn people when they they like some of what this crowd has to say related to racial issues or or feminist issues or anything. I'm like, you do not want to learn anything from these people. Because they're going to take that same template and they're going to apply it to the gospel which is what has happened in all of these high church denominations that have shriveled up and died. That the Bible has been used to promote a Christian hegemony over all the world. It has oppressed people and thwarted people. That's why we've got to get into the Bible. We've got to deconstruct it, take it apart. And as one of the leaders of that movement, Ibram Kendi said very famously, the church needs to get away from savior narratives. It's like, that's kind of the whole thing, dude. That we have a savior who came to the world. They, they resent, they want to cast off, let's get rid of this. Isn't that kind of the whole idea? But the Lord looks at that and he says, why do the nations rage? What are you raging? The heart of sin that hates God and hates his authority. But it's also found in each of us personally, isn't it? Most people's motivation for abandoning Jesus or leaving the church is not because, well, I finally thought it through and I came to this reasonable argument or because of, well, just all these terrible things happening in my life. No, it's the desire to live however they want to. That is the reason. I want to I do this. God says I can't, so I'm out. And people will often try to blame their circumstances. You just don't know what I'm going through right now. Like that would work with your king. Or like Malachi said, try that with your governor. Well, you don't understand, Your Honor. I had to do this because you just don't know how I was raised. He's like, yeah, okay, guilty. Well, you just don't understand. No, because there's a law that's been laid down. There's a standard of righteousness. And as the Bible teaches us, if you dig down long enough talking to somebody about why they left the church, oh, I've been hurt, oh, somebody did this, oh, I just went through this thing and I couldn't handle it, what it really gets down to is you don't want to forgive somebody. You don't want to obey God. You want to do whatever you want with sex. You want to chase greed. You've gotten a little older and you're scared that life's passed you by. So you want to try to start all over again. That's the motivation. And you resent God's authority. Let's break off those shekels that the gospel is placed on. I feel so free. I feel so wonderful. You know, people who really feel free don't feel the need to say it all the time. Because they're free. They just don't say anything, right? Defiance of God has been the human condition since the Garden of Eden, and it persists to this day. And the psalmist identifies that. And in verse 4, we see God's reaction. What's God going to do? Sometimes we get like that, don't we? We see it on TV. Oh, look what they're saying about Jesus. Look what they're doing in the church. What are we going to do next? Let's see what God has to say. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. And terrify them in his fury saying, well, y'all can do whatever you want. But as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you can hear the king speaking here. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations, goyim, ethne, Gentiles, your heritage and the ends of the earth, your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. An older translation of verse nine might have shepherd them with a rod of iron. Historically, that was changed to soften that verse. Because folks did not like the idea of Jesus breaking somebody with a rod of iron. But if it's in the Bible, you best get used to it. How does God respond to the defiance of man? Derision. He laughs. I, you can picture you know, God in his throne room and here comes a big mob of people with their list of demands. We're not going to follow you anymore. We demand that you read a, you follow this document and you've got to sign it. <laughs> no. The Lord laughs. Like, oh, well, Lord, you've got to help. What? What are they doing? Well, they said that they're going to eradicate Christianity from the world. <laughs> okay, let's see them try. But, Lord, don't you see? He goes, yeah, okay, whatever. They've been stay. They can't stop me. Derision. Laughter. They're going to, well, we're going to show you our rage, Lord. That's kind of become the vogue thing, right? Is rage. Like, don't, that's a bad thing. Hasn't that always been a bad thing? Was, you want to see rage? How about I show you my rage? How about I show you my wrath? I'm going to show you my fury. (laughs) It's funny to think about that. We don't like to talk about God's wrath and fury so much. But how puny is the wrath of man compared to the wrath of God? No one defies God. Nobody says, God, I know what you said, but I'm going to do this anyway. He says, "I have established my king in Zion." This is a great word, and it fills the psalm. So we're going to define it and get it real good here at the beginning. This is actually pronounced with a T-S at the beginning, Zion, Zion. We don't pronounce many Hebrews words right, so it's okay. Zion, Zion. Now this refers to a couple different things and is used a couple different ways. So we're going to kind of start small and expand it out. It's, it first of all talks about the Temple Mount. That, that is Mount Zion, where the temple was built. And uh, that's God's holy hill, right? It also is referred more broadly to Jerusalem. This city is Zion, because that's where Zion, the mountain, is. It also, especially when they're in exile, referred more broadly to the nation of Israel itself. We're going home to Zion. That's why the movement to establish Israel as its own nation is called the Zionist movement. Because we're going home. We're going back to where we belong, where God's mountain is. But it's also even bigger than that. That it refers spiritually to God's holy mountain, his heavenly throne. The temple is often pictured as God's place of dwelling. That this is where he is, the mountain of God. Very common uh, ancient Near Eastern picture. And the Bible makes great use of it because it's a great image. That This is God's mountain. He sits in the heavens and this is where we come to worship him. Zion. So I've established my king in Zion. It's it's sort of like saying I've established my king in a place where I'm the only one allowed to be and I'm the only one that has anything to say. We're not taking a vote, that's my king. And you see this coronation language, which is exactly what it is. I've set my king on Zion and then the the king himself, I wonder if they would have the kings sing this bit. Don't you ever wonder how they might have performed these songs when they were sung? I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I've begotten you. It's a pretty cool thing to say. I imagine you would have trembled singing that verse when it specifically applied to you. As the son of God. Now remember, there's a dual meaning here. There's the little k king and the little s son. But it also refers broader to the capital K king and the capital S son of God. He's saying, because God has established this king, all you angry nations, here's what I have to say. Every nation is his if he wants it. The whole ends of the earth is his possession. So there's no point in you marching around with your angry protest signs. If he asks, I'm giving him your kingdom. <laughs> a little trash talk. I told you I kind of like this psalm. It's, it's got a, it's a very masculine sense to it. It's like, No. I'm not, I'm, I'm not regarding your, your complaints, thank you very much. Because God has established this king, every nation is his. And he says, you'll break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That is exactly describing tyrannical rule of the kind we hate. But when it comes to God's king, God says, that's the kind of authority I give to my kings. And I was I don't know if I like that very much. Well, this psalm is supposed to correct that attitude in you. God has established his king. Now at the national level, right? Yeah, I imagine the psalm would have been very comforting when the Philistines would raise their ugly heads and come in to invade, right? Or the Moabites or the Syrians or whoever it was that God's reminding them, who's in charge? And that's what made David such a great warrior, right? They come out and there's nine foot Goliath. You know, maybe you watch wrestling and you've seen some of those big guys. And you're like, whoa, imagine a guy who dwarfs all those guys you know, who walks, you know, who's going to hit his head on the net walking under a basketball ball, basketball hoop. And he's out there saying, who wants to fight me? And they all run away. Oh, no. And you read the story every 40 days. They marched out for 40. No, oh, we're going to, this time we're really going to stand and face him. And every single day they run away until little shepherd boy David shows up and he hears the guy's speech and goes, who is this uncircumcised Philistine to defy the armies of the living God? I love David so much. That's why God is like, Thank you. Make him king, would you? Because he's like, if God's with us, nobody can stop. We're going to go out there. We're going to smash that pot into pieces. And that's when Goliath's like, I'm, I'm going to rip you apart and feed you to the birds of the air. Well, I'm going to rip you apart and feed you to the birds of the air and the beasts of the fields. How you like that? What, are you going to hit me with a stick, little boy, like I'm a dog? He goes, no, but I'm coming in the name of the Lord and there is a God in Israel and you're going down today. So it says that Goliath was offended. that you would even send this little shrimp. And then it says Goliath goes out and David ran to meet him. I bet his voice was still cracking at that point. (laughs) Yeah. Right? (laughs) And, you know, so he flings the stone and Goliath falls. And David, I bet you David was still talking trash, too. He's like, oh, that's quite a sword you got there, mister. And he holds it over his head like some, like, Final Fantasy character and slams it over his head. Holds it up and says, there is a God in Israel. That's faith. That's confidence. And that's the kind of faith and confidence that this psalm was supposed to inspire in the people of Israel every time they sang it. Oh, Babylon. Oh, Assyria. And they're like, guys, I'm going to smash them to pieces. The king should have been the one to have enough faith to say, if I want, I can go and ask God, would you please expand our borders to include Babylon? He'd be like, yes, sir. Off you go. Confidence. But let's look at this on the celestial level here this heavenly spiritual level, that God is dismissing the rage and anger of man in the face of his own rage and anger. If you don't like the idea of God being angry, this is the wrong religion for you because it is everywhere. The wrath of God is as much a part of his character as the love of God. The same Jesus that could say, let the little children come to me is also the one that could turn over tables and say, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves. And this is exactly, by the way, using this language, how the book of Revelation describes Jesus' return at the end of time. Revelation 19.15. I, I, it's always so hard for me to not read that whole passage, but I'll just read the one verse. When Jesus returns, it says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with what? a rod of iron. There's no debate when Jesus is king. There's no voting. There's no polls when Jesus is king. He says, the rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Do you have room for that understanding of Jesus in your conception of who he is? You better make room. What do you mean tread the winepress? I'm glad you asked. What they would do is they would take the grapes and they'd put them into that big big barrel and they would tread, walk on the wine press to squish the grapes so that they could make the juice and then they could make wine out of it and ferment it. Now, if you spend all day treading the wine press, your garment is going to be stained. Now, when it says Jesus is treading the wine press, he's not, he's not making wine, Okay. The winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. He's going to be stained with blood, but it's not going to be his blood. Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem, splattered with the blood of his enemies, with a sword in his hand, riding on a white horse, which will also be splattered with blood by that point, I would imagine. The wrath of God poured out on the rebellious armies of the Antichrist, which represent all of mankind's rage against the Lord. It does not matter how many new theories you come up with about how to interpret Scripture or how many votes you take. There are groups that get together that vote on whether or not this verse belongs in the Bible. What a foolish endeavor. No wonder other religions laugh at us sometimes. It's like, who does this? I thought that was your book. What are you doing picking it apart? And it doesn't matter how the culture moves. Christ is king and will be king forever. You've got to know that before you start picking a fight with God or disobeying his word or saying, God, I know this is wrong, but I'll repent later. Now, we take comfort in the fact that Jesus will win as we're supposed to looking at this because there's a lot of Goliaths that love to stand up and roar, right? Oh, we're coming for the church, like Voltaire, who was a famous philosopher just around the revolutionary generation in France and predicted that there will be no more Bibles and no more Christianity within 50 years. Well, and the thing is, that's like prior to the internet, that's prior to the, the biblical translation projects that we have now, that's prior to world missions as it is today. But back then, I can imagine a lot, oh, he's the smartest guy in the world. Everybody, he's welcome into the court of the king. And everybody's following this guy. And even Benjamin Franklin loves Voltaire. And what are we supposed to do? And God's like, this guy? This Frenchman? You're worried about him? He doesn't know what he's talking about. But Lord, look at how things are going. And they're chopping off priests' heads in France. God goes, they've been chopping off heads since day one. I got crucified. And I'm still standing. So what are you worried about? I have chosen my king. I've set my king on my holy hill. You take comfort in that fact. Every foe will fall. I can't wait till we get to Psalm 37. That is the political season Psalm. Psalm 37. It says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Go meditate on that until you get it. And then move on to verse 2. Don't not be afraid, because the Lord's like, there's always somebody spreading like a green laurel tree. There's always some movement. There's always some wicked thing growing up like kudzu. And then you turn your head and you look back and they're gone. Where'd they go? Because the Lord will win. But this attitude that we talk about in, in religion and in society, it also affects our personal life. Or shall we say, infects our personal life. When we resent the fact that Jesus is a king and as a king, he is an absolute monarch. Well, you know, Jesus and I, we sort of work it out between us. No. (laughs) Well, I know this is wrong, but I have an understanding from God. If your special understanding with God involves you going against the word of God, you've been deceived by the devil. And you don't know God's word like you think you do, apparently. You don't get a vote. And sometimes we know we don't get a vote and that makes us angry. I'm like... Why did you make that one a sin? God didn't make anything a sin. Sin is sin. And he calls it like it is. And we also, I don't want to go off on this rabbit trail. We'll return to it another day, but I will just say this. We've got to stop talking about certain sins as if we're really sorry that this one is against the rules. Whether you do that with drunkenness or you do it with homosexuality or you do it with, pick your poison, right? I know, I know. I know. I, I really wish this wasn't the case. I wish every religion led to salvation. What, no, you don't say things like that. What happened to delighting in the commandments of the Lord? What happened to eradicating illicit desires and chopping off your right hand if it causes you to sin? Jesus is a king. When a king walks in the room, you bow your knee. says, "Hey, what's up, King? How you doing?" That'll get you thrown into the dungeon. Well, that's not fair. Where are my rights? What rights do you have? You forfeited your rights the first day you sinned. And besides, God made all of this. Shall a potter say to the one who's, Hey, hey, what are you making me? I don't like that. How about I pick you up and smash you and make you into something else? (laughs) Isaiah and Paul both make that point. I don't like the way you're making me. I don't like the situation you stuck me in. He goes, I didn't ask. I'm the Lord, and I can do this. He's not your friend to compromise with. Now, is he your friend that sticks closer than a brother in another sense? Yeah. But you don't become that kind of friend with Jesus. Where it's like, well, listen, you know, you got ideas, and I got ideas. Let's agree to disagree. No way. There's a, you ever see that movie Master and Commander? One of my favorite movies of all time, but... It's a, there's the captain of the ship who's very no-nonsense. You know, it's a warship during the Napoleonic era. And he's like, we do this, and then we follow orders. And if you don't do that, you get flogged. And he's got this sort of free-thinking, you know, forward-thinking uh, doctor on the ship who's always, like, coming in and, and like, challenging him. And, like, you know, he's like, hey, you can't do that. That's not fair. And there comes a point where he's, like, basically tells him, like, you got to stop this. And I, I respect your right to disagree with me, but I can only afford one rebel on this ship is what he says. It's kind of like, I'm still the captain of this ship, pal. You you don't get to come in. Well, I disagree, so we got to do something else. Well, you're not captain. You ain't king, peasant. He is a king full of fury and wrath. And despite, may I just say, I I read two commentaries for Psalms. It's not as much as I usually do, but they both had good things to say. But one of them I just loved because they just leaned into the psalm. Where it's like, man, that's our God. we got to worship our God and bow before him. I'm like, hallelujah, brother. The other guy, though, is like, now when we read about God's wrath and breaking things like a potter's vessel, we all know it's very hard to reconcile this with the person of Jesus Christ as revealed in the New Testament. It's like, maybe for you. Because you are obligated. And he kind of works his, works his way to completely erase the sting and the punch out of this psalm. All of that hard masculine edge to it. All of that, you know, almost trash-talking you know, game seven stuff. Yeah. He's like, no, that, that's not Jesus. Like, have you read your Gospels, man? He said, if anybody is not with me, he's against me. And Jesus said that. And we've already read Revelation 19 when he's going to come. But people don't like the thought of somebody telling them what to do. You know that in the Gospel of John, but one of the, the uh, difficulties of trying to interpret it sometimes is that Jesus is being deliberately vague He says, I'm not going to tell you what I meant by that very confusing statement. Well, you can't do that. He goes, I'm the son of God. I can do whatever I want. Well, that's not fair. Well, he's not not a citizen. He's not on the same level as you. You know, we believe that our rights come from God anyway, allegedly, right? That he's the one that decides. And if he decides, yeah, I don't think you have that right anymore. He's the one that has the authority to do that. He owes an explanation to no one. So if you're reading your Bible and it says you must respect your husband or love your wife or submit to the governmenting authorities or pay your taxes or whatever, it is, I don't think I agree with that. It doesn't matter if you disagree with that. That's your king. That's your king. And I recognize that we've built a nation kind of unlike we hate kings, which means this lesson is going to be a little extra difficult for us to comprehend, which means we need to take a little extra time to understand it. The whole world is God's domain. Zion is everywhere, your life included. And if you are going to walk in persistent disobedience, the king is coming to break you. To the end now, verse 10. Now therefore, okay, so the people are raging. They're defying God. He's deriding them. What's the lesson? (laughs) What's the takeaway? Well, you probably can guess. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Let's translate that, don't do nothing stupid. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. (laughs) You've been warned. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The reaction of God is derision. So what is our response? Serve the Lord. Kiss the son. There are some ancient versions that even... Make it more obvious that this is like kiss the feet of the sun, bow before the king, like very a very uh, of that culture to do. Bow down and kiss the feet of the king, or kiss the ring. Right is how we did it in Europe, for example. He's like, you you better kiss the sun, or he'll get angry with you. Out of fear, but also out of joy. You see, there we submit out of fear. Well, you tell me, I'm supposed to be afraid of God? Uh yeah, yes. He's powerful and he's mighty and he's full of wrath. And guess what? His wrath is always right. You know, it's one thing when you're having an argument with somebody and they're angry at you and you're angry at them. It's very hard, though, when you realize about halfway through the conversation, I think I'm wrong here. I think I picked the wrong battle. And they're angry and they have a right to be angry. There's not a thing I can do about it. Guess what? That's God all the time. God's wrath is always in the right. It's always furious about the right things, which is why when heaven sees the judgments that fall upon the earth, they fall on their face and say, True and righteous are your judgments, O Lord. That's why we submit out of fear. God does not have to earn your loyalty, He is owed that loyalty from you. Owed that loyalty. And I know we don't like that. We don't have lords and serfs and kings anymore, at least in this country. But that's the picture. You live on my land, you owe loyalty to me. And this earth is God's land. So nationally, what does this mean? It means that every nation who defies Israel's Messiah is going to be struck down. There will never be a successful eradication of the Jews or of the nation of Israel because God will preserve them and their king will come. In the celestial application, you can either serve Jesus with gladness or you can face his wrath when he comes. Those are your choices. And our own rulers ought to take heed. This is actually addressed. O oh, kings, be wise. Be warned, O oh, rulers of the earth. That's this country. Well, we don't have kings anymore. Well, we have rulers. Well, it's not ruler; it's governance. Same thing. Well, we're a democracy. Then we all ought to be afraid. We, we have... We fell for it. We fell for it during the last century. That what we needed to do was secularize everything. Same rules, just take God out of it. Psalm 1, wisdom, but no Psalm 2. And a bunch of vicious, dedicated people have stepped in, and there's no foundation left. And people don't know what to stand on. To say, well, we... we uh, we don't acknowledge any one god as king or as lord. then that means that you are denying jesus christ his rightful place. doesn't mean anything about any of these false gods cuz they're false gods. but you're saying to the true and living god, well, we're going to treat you like everybody else. even the ones that were made up last month. what king would allow himself to be so shamed? you know, this is a thing that we understand it when it comes to sports. For some reason, we, we don't like it when it's applied to, like, nations. If one, like, athlete disrespects another one, and he just kind of lets it go and doesn't do anything, we're like, what's wrong with you, man? You're going to let that guy, you know, he's going to go down at the basket, and he's going to, like, step over you, and you're just going to let that go? Or some guy's going to be out and, you know, he's going to be talking on Facebook or Twitter or whatever it is and saying, wow, that guy, you know, he can't guard me and, you know, he's going to, I'm going to be out there, I'm going to get five touchdowns this week. You kind of expect that dude to show up and just blow that guy, take a cheap shot at once during during the next game. Baseball's the best at this. There's all kinds of unwritten rules in baseball. You show off, you hit a home run, that next pitch is coming where? Right at your head self-enforcing. There's a respect. There's an attitude of, no, you don't get to insult and shame me like that. And that's how kings handled their their business too. You know, if I send an envoy to you and you disrespect them, we might come to blows over this because there's a sense of honor involved. And we do things differently this way. I think it might not be a bad idea to reclaim at least a little bit of that instead of just letting ourselves get walked all over. But (laughs) Let's talk about Jesus Christ and the Lord our God. Is he going to allow himself to be shamed? All these people that say these terrible things, all these folks that are parading themselves to mock and defy the living God, do you think God's just going to let them get away with it? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. It's going to come back around. And it's not like, all oh, the laws of karma. It's not, no, God is going to see to it that it comes around. This is why we preach a strong gospel. Because the king's throne has, I used this illustration on Sunday. I'm going to say it again, though. The king's throne has been usurped. And he's coming back to invade the country and take it back by force. He sent us ahead with pardons in our hand. Hey, no, no hard feelings. You can be forgiven. He did everything that's needed to forgive you. And you can be right back on his team. You can join the winning side. That's why we preach the gospel strongly. That's why I don't like talking about the wrath of God. Well, that's the destiny of everybody that defies Jesus. They've got to know that. The most loving thing you can do is warn somebody. But on the personal level. Your choice is to obey the Lord and his word or perish in your own way. So many people think they get a pass on obedience because of the circumstances they find themselves in. You just don't know what happened to me. That's why I don't have to obey Jesus. Did Jesus let anybody get away with that? He most certainly did not. Go and sin no more. He told one guy, go and sin no more lest something worse come upon you. Jesus was full of love and kindness, but it was a love and kindness that led to restoration and final obedience. Well, I just don't, I I want God to tell me what to do, but this time I got to do my own thing. Then you're no disciple of Christ. You followed Jesus right up into the moment where you had something to do that you didn't want to do. I wanted to do this and God said no, so I did something else. You were never a follower of Christ, whatever you might have been. You said, I agree with most of the stuff in this book. But wherever I disagree with it, I'm going to do my own thing. Do you think that God is pleased with you? Think God will give you a pass on that? God's word is going to be your judge. Well, I just don't know if I agree with that. Who cares? Now, I'm not saying that I don't care about the things you think and the things you feel. When it comes to matters of right and wrong and what does the word say and who is king and who is lord, we're not consulting, we're not going to have a panel. Well, what do you think about that? The Messiah has come. Malachi 1.14. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. So he's using the example of if you got a good lamb and you sacrifice the blemished one, you're cursed. Let's put this in our terms. If you have the option in front of you to do the right thing, and you do less than the right thing, God is not pleased by that. For, he explains at the second half of that verse, for I am a great king, said the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Now, you think you can do this to me? Was well, God full of pride? God is the only one that has the right to talk like that. And the reason pride is sinful in you and me is because we are not God. But because he is, I'm a great king. You wouldn't, and that's part of the message of Malachi. You wouldn't do that for anybody else. You wouldn't pull that with a judge or your spouse or your pastor or your boss. Don't come to me and think I'm going to accept it. Well, grace, yeah, grace, right? Yes, but the grace of the Lord is not permission to sin. It's room to repent. Bible says the kindness of the Lord is meant to lead us to repentance, which means if you're doing the wrong thing and nothing bad has happened to you yet, God is saying, I'm giving you a chance right now to make it right. Saying something bad might happen to me? I hope so. Because that means you're being chastised. You're being punished so that the Lord can get your attention and restore you. If He allows you to persist in that sin, and maybe, according to Romans chapter 1, He's given you over to that sin and you're going to pay for it in the next life. Which, don't get it wrong, there's only one next life and you've only got two options. Fear the Lord. On these levels national, celestial, personal there's warning. For the nations. There's also a blessing. I want to end with this blessing. In chapter 2, verse 12, the last sentence, his wrath is quickly kindled, right? Okay. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. If that's the guy we're dealing with, why not let him be your king? How would you like somebody like I've described tonight to be on your side, offering favor to you, supporting your life, giving blessings to you? Because that is what is offered to the disciples of Christ. Check this out. Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 and 27. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end. So Christians now. To him, I will give authority over the nations and... He will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Did you catch that one? He's taking the language of Psalm chapter 2, which is applied to Jesus, and he's giving it to you. Because the relationship of the Christian to Christ is in parallel the relationship between Christ and the Father. John chapter 17 says, may they be one even as we are one. Hey, that's not about unity that's about your relationship with God. He said, I in them and you in me. That Jesus Christ is in the Father, the Father is in the Son. And since the Son is in you, you have the fullness of God in your life. And the inheritance of Christ is yours. That's Romans 8. That says, Just if we're sons of God like Jesus, we are heirs of God like Jesus. Do you realize that God protects you? That God looks at the people that rage against you like this? And he wants to fight for you and to prosper you with success. I know we're not promised worldly luxuries, but we've got to at least restore the fact that God delights in blessing his children. God wants you to have success. This is what the psalm they would sing. Save us, O Lord. We pray, give us success. That you g- to get out there and shoot for the moon. To seek his hand and receive his blessing as vassals of his kingdom. The key for you, as it was for the kings of Israel, they didn't just get a blanket blessing because of where they sat. They had to keep his word. They had to obey the Son. They had to obey the Holy Spirit, who dwells within you if you are in Christ. Those who acknowledge God and submit to Jesus as King are found within his kingdom. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. One day it will be. He's going to return to reign and judge the living and the dead. But in the meantime, Everywhere you go, the Holy Spirit is with you. And everywhere you express and live out the will of God on the earth, that is Zion. That's where God holds authority. So don't don't fall for the lie of I've got to determine my own fate. I've got to chart my own course and be my own person. How about you submit instead to the true King of heaven and gain all of his power and all of his glory and all of his blessings? Well, that just seems like, like a wimpy thing to do. That just seems like giving up my own life and just giving it to somebody else. No, you are a rebel. You are in rebellion against the true King. You, you are not the good guys in this story. You are the bad guy. Jesus is the hero coming to take back what is his, and you get to join the winning side and receive all of his blessings and be invited into the royal family. You turn down that deal. You're a fool. The world may defy God, but he simply scoffs in derision until the day comes when he's going to assert his fiery dominance over the world. He's going to consume everyone except those who have bowed the knee to Christ. Because in the end, every soul that stood against the King of Kings will have to say with Emperor Julian the Apostate, "Viciste Galilei. Galilean thou hast conquered